Well, amen. It is great to have you with us today as we do celebrate and learn a little bit more about how great our God is as we study the book of Amos. In fact, we're going to discover that God is so great, he's great enough to chase us down when we go down the wrong path. So again, thanks for joining us online or out in the tent. And for those of you here coming at 8.30, we appreciate you uh, enjoying our new service time as well. Quick reminder though, if you haven't been with us in Amos, sometimes it's hard to get different books of the Bible and figure out where we are in the Old Testament narrative. So here's a quick summary of the Old Testament. This ought to clear it up for you. So there you go. Hopefully I cleared it up. We'll keep moving on. This is uh, the entire Old Testament in one drawing. So starting with Abraham. Abraham was given a promise by God. Obviously Noah and Adam came before that. But the promise of God with Abraham, he has a promised son named Isaac. Isaac has several sons, but one of them was Jacob. Jacob was a professional wrestler. His name means wrestle. And he had 12 sons, the 12 sons of Israel. One of them's name was Joseph. Joseph got sold to, in slavery to Egypt. He ends up moving his whole family there when he becomes second command to the Pharaoh. And now they're in Egypt. And then later they're in bondage for 400 years. Moses shows up, delivers the people. They get to the promised land, but they don't trust God. So they have to wander in the book of Numbers for about 40 years. And they wander around until Joshua brings them into the land. We then go through a time of cycles called Judges. And then we set up three times of kings. The first king is Saul. Next one is David. And next one is Solomon. And that is the book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and 1 Kings. After Solomon, the kingdom gets divided. So Israel gets divided into the northern section and the southern section. So we are right here in the book of Amos, where Amos, who lives in the south, is moving up to the north to give them some words from God. So that's where we find ourselves. And we're just before the moment in the Old Testament where the Assyrian Empire, capital city Nineveh, is about to come in and attack the northern kingdom. And Amos is trying to warn them to turn back to God before they face these consequences. See, I told you it's the summary of the Old Testament. And the rest doesn't apply for today. And what we're going to discover today is that the God of the Old Testament and New Testament loves you and I enough to warn us when we're on the wrong path. And the opposite of love is indifference. Not hate. When you love someone and you see them making bad choices, you can't be indifferent. You say, I've got to help you before you get into too much pain or cause so much pain to yourself and others. And the God of the Bible is a God of love. He is not indifferent toward his people. And he loves us so much, he's willing to say, no, 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 don't go down that path. He's willing to say, grow, 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 grow up. Let's be more mature. Let's not choose that stuff. He also loves enough to say, whoa, 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 don't, no, whoa. You do not want to go down that path. So that's our main idea today. The opposite of love is indifference. And the God of the Bible loves us enough to say no, grow, and whoa. Because he knows that leaving lives of rebellion can hurt us and help others. Give you an example. In 1864, Abraham Lincoln's wife, Mary, was riding a carriage through Washington, D.C. 
Now we think of kind of car accidents being a big deal, but runaway horses was a huge deal. Her driver was riding along in the front of the carriage, and all of a sudden, his seat got loose, and he fell off in Washington, D.C. He scares the horses because he fell, and they take off at breakneck speeds running through Washington, D.C., and Mary Lincoln is in the back carriage, scared to death as this thing is going kamikaze through the city. She eventually throws open the carriage door, tosses herself out, bang, bangs her head. She'll have migraines for the rest of her life because of this moment, but those horses don't stop. They begin to just tirade through the entire city. In fact, runaway horses was such a problem now, she had tried, right, before she jumped out of the carriage, she's like, whoa, whoa, stop, whoa, 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 no, don't go that way. But they didn't stop. Instead, they caused incredible damage to her and everyone in the city. In fact, the Washington Magazine a year later said that there was one time that eight teams of horses scared each other, they got loose, and it destroyed all of their carriages, reducing it down to kindling. It's how much power is in a horse that doesn't know how to respond to woe. And even more so to us, when God says a different kind of woe, W-O-E, whoa, 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 don't go that way. And we keep going that way. We can hurt ourselves and we can hurt others. So God's going to address three conversations today between himself and his people. And the goal is going to say, hey, that path leads to destruction. And I want you to identify the lie that's driving you down the path that's driving you toward destruction. Let's converse a bit. And my hope is that you can understand my heart is to rescue you, to help you, to find the lie that might be driving the decisions you're making. First conversation. We're in Amos chapter 6. And Amos chapter 6 is going to pick up on what Drew talked about last week, what it means to worship God, what it means to put him first and how we respond to others, how we steward our resources, and how we think about what's at the center of our lives. The first conversation is this. I say, northern Israel is saying, it will never happen to me. I won't go down that path. I won't get conquered. I won't get addicted. I won't lose my freedom. I won't hurt anyone. It will never happen to me. And God's like, say what? It, it, it has happened. Whoa! It's happened to many people like you in the past. Why in the world would you come to the conclusion that this wouldn't happen to you? Oh, because we're smarter, we're, we're more advanced, we're more sophisticated. It won't happen to us. He's like, yeah, it's happened to so many people like you who thought they were immune to the consequences Whoa, don't believe that lie. And here's how he says it, starting in chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are at ease. Not going to happen to us in Zion. And here's why you're at ease. Because you're trusting in something that you think is going to save you from consequences. You are trusting in Mount Samaria. There's a mountain there with a giant temple to your gods and, and very sophisticated cities and very sophisticated military and lots and lots of money and lots and lots of power. You were trusting in a location that represented power and might and the smart people and the noble people. The chief nation, ah, you're a powerful nation. Oh, the notable people, the smart people to whom the house of Israel comes. 
let's touch on that for a second. Where is Mount Samaria? Well, again, Amos has come up to the north, so he was down here in Judah. He's come up to the north to the capital city of Samaria that's been set up with this gigantic church, this gigantic worship center, celebrating prosperity while exploiting the poor and actually not worshiping the true God. If you look at the topography on the map, you'll see that it's a very high area. So if you went there today, you would see the giant mountain ranges. Like, let me take you there for a moment. Well, I got a little video footage of Mount Samaria. And imagine to yourself that you're Amos. You've been down south, right? And you're making your way up to this gigantic urban center. So you come up here to Samaria. This is what it looks like today. Imagine, this was the New York of its day. This was the Chicago of its day. Military might. This was the Washington, D.C. of its day. And you're Amos, a simple shepherd. And God's called you as a shepherd from a rural area to come to this major metropolis and say, guys, all your sophistication, all of your power, all of your might, all of your smart people doing smart things is not going to rescue you from the consequences. But they would say, look how powerful we are. We're one of the most powerful cities in the world. It will never happen to us. And Amos the sheep herder says, guys... It's happened to many people who thought they were powerful and rich and smart. And God has warned many over the years. And guess what? They all face the same fate because they didn't hear and respond to God's whoa, whoa, whoa. In fact, he says it exactly that. It's happened to many people like you. Here's the next part of the verse. Hey, go over to Calne and see. And from there, go to Hamath the Great. And then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Are, is their territory greater than your territory? Twitch like, Chad, that, that didn't really clear it up. I'm not sure what that did about anything, right? I'm not sure what Calne and Hamath and Gath are. He's referencing cities in the past they knew about who thought they were powerful and got crushed. It would be like me saying, oh, you think that you're never going to face the consequences of your actions? You think you're too big to fail? You think you're too powerful to ever have something happen to you? It would be like him saying, Phil in the worth, go over to the Titanic and see. Yeah, I remember the Titanic said it was unsinkable. I remember in the newspaper article it said, this boat is so unsinkable, even God couldn't unsink it. Oh, how'd that work out for you? The next one, Hamath. It'd be like saying, well, think of the Titanic. Think of a Custer's last stand. Yeah, he was pretty confident too for a little bit. A very little bit. Gath of the Philistines. Remember, they thought they were powerful. You remember those 2005 New Orleans levees that for years the engineers said, it's going to break, it's going to break, it's going to break, it's going to break, it's going to break. And the politicians like, not going to happen to us, not going to happen to us. Don't worry about it. We'll use the funds some other way. Okay. How'd that work out for you? That's what God's saying here with the reference to these three cities. There have been proud, arrogant, unteachable people trusting in their own power and their own might for centuries, just like you. And it did happen to them, and it will happen to you if you do not heed my woe. In one sense, this last year of COVID has really been a pressure test to see what it is you're trusting in. 
right? I'm not waving my finger at them. I've trusted my own Mount Samarias, right? My own source of power or pleasure to get me through challenging times. And God says, no, that's not going to cut it when things get difficult. You need to depend on me. Are you trusting in God? Are you trusting in an idol? You're on Mount Samaria. In fact, it was during COVID that there was an interview with uh, Chris Martin, the lead singer of Coldplay. And he said, I no longer stand before sold-out arenas. And I had to ask myself, who am I now? I didn't even realize I got my self-worth from the applause of others. But now with that being stripped away, I had to come face to face with who am I, what makes me valuable, and where do I get my self-worth? I have been trusting in the applause of filled stadiums to define my identity. So we all do it. Your idol seems silly to me, but my idol is very, very serious and very, very important. But there's this pressure test that God gives and says, will you trust in yourself or you trust my voice? Especially when you hear me say, whoa. My dad and I, my whole family really, but my dad and I used to do a lot of motor, motorcycling, but also bicycling when I was a kid. I had this great BMX bike. It was, it was yellow and blue, and I loved this thing. And so we had an air compressor in our garage, and so I would fill up my own tires when I was like fifth, sixth grade. I was like, you know, 30 seconds later, be ready to go. Well, one day my dad and I were biking about a quarter mile from our house, and my tire was a little low. So as we pull into the gas station, I walk up to the air compressor, and I'm about to put the air on, and my dad's like, whoa, 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 whoa. The air compressors here are, dad, dad, I'm 10. I have been filling my bike with an air compressor for years. I think I'll be fine. Whoa, no, no. And dad said, okay. So I get down as proud as I could be, knowing I knew better than my dad how to fill up a tire on a bicycle, grab the air compressor, put it in there, figure I'm going to count to about 30, but dad might be right. I'll only count to 15 this time. I put it on there. Boom! It was the loudest explosion I've heard in a long time. Pow! What happened? What happened? Dad's like, hmm. Our air compressor has this much PSI, the air compressor here does a lot of 18-wheelers. It has this much PSI. You just blew up your tire. Oh. And I remember walking home with that tire. The, the, the push of shame, right? Because I didn't heed my dad's woe, and I had my confidence, my trust in the fact that I knew better how to handle the situation. Well, how often do we do that? Just we trust our own resources, our own smarts, our own ability to figure it out more than God. So that's our first one. It'll never happen to me. Mm -hmm. Push that BMX bike home. God's saying, whoa, it has happened to so many people like you. Don't let pride come before destruction. Number two, second conversation. This is when we say to God, I'm a long way. I mean, a long way from that being a problem. Uh, yeah, I struggle with a little bit of lust, but not, no, not, not like lust, lust. Oh, I struggle with a little bit of money issues and fear with money, but I'm not greedy. Oh, far, 
Oh, yeah, sure, I get resentful occasionally, but not bitter. I'm a long way off from bitterness or greed or self-centeredness. I'm basically a good person. And God's like, mm-hmm. Whoa. Not only are you not far off, you're going to be the first to feel the pain when the Assyrians come in. You're not the back of the line. You're going to be at the front of the line. You are so close to danger, and worst is you don't even know it. Here's how he says it. Woe to you who put off the day of doom. Not going to happen to me. It's a long way off. The day of consequences. I am so far from that being an issue. So far that I don't need to think about this. Our marriage is in great shape. We would never drift from each other. You put off the day of doom as if consequences are nowhere near you. I am way, way, way away from that. And yet you're doing things. While telling yourself you're far off, you're doing things that are causing the seed of violence to come near. Have you seen people you love and care about head down a path to destruction? And you're like, hey, be careful, be careful. like, ah, don't worry about it. Ah, don't be such a worry word. And they just keep marching down the path of destruction. And you're like, you're getting closer to the cliff. No, no. Well, God's saying the same thing to us. You're marching down a path and you think you're far off. Well, the whole time you're getting nearer to it. And the whole time you're not worried about it because you lie in your beds of ivory. It's a beautiful bed. You stretch out on your couches. Ah, oh, it's a beautiful couch. You eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. You sing idly to the sound of string instruments. And you invent for yourself musical instruments like David. Eh, you know what? We need a new type of guitar like a lyre. You drink wine from bowls and anoint yourself with the best ointments. And look what he says. You're so distracted by your comfort that you don't realize that you have consequences coming your way and you're making decisions that are bringing those consequences closer. And the whole time you're saying, I'm a long way off from that being a problem. Several years ago, I went to a men's group at our church and it was actually really awesome because the guys got together for kind of beer and Bible studies you know, once a week and, and I showed up this week just to kind of meet with some of the guys I didn't know. And it was just so great to see guys talking honestly about, man, I really made this mistake. Oh my goodness, help me out. I just really blew it. And, and just having guys kind of have guy mockery, mocking each other, celebrating each other, comforting each other, um, encouraging each other. It was just a great environment. And what specifically hit me is guys being honest about dumb things they did or dumb things they were doing and needing help to turn around. One of the guys in the group said, hey, Chad, uh, you want to go ride horses sometime? I said, I love to ride horses. I I grew up riding horses. He says, great. So I go out riding with my buddy Joe, and we get on one of his horses. And, And immediately I notice something's different. See, I grew up in Groveland, Illinois, where they had horses that you could rent that I rented like once every five years and, and and these horses had been trained for like three decades to barely move you get on this thing yeah 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 come on boom 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 we're going through McNaughton Park these things go like maybe half a mile an hour boom boom come on come on boom 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 this is my experience on horses well Already, these horses are twice as tall. I'm like, whoa, I am up here. Well, 
He asks, have you rid horses before? Of course I've rid horses before. And he's off. We're going through Indian Hill. I'm trying to stand in the saddle. I'm, oh, this is my and I'm like, oh, my, I'm in danger. And so I'm trying to not be too loud for him to say, but I'm like, whoa, <laughs> whoa. I'm, that, that horse is ignoring everything about my woe. I mean, I am moving so fast. And, and I'm like, should I ask for help? Guys, am I going to ask for help? No! I am far off from being in danger. I am far off from this being a problem. I have ultimate trust in one of my strengths. I'll figure it out. And I'm a good figure-it-outer. But sometimes it's the strengths we have, like my figure-it-outness, that becomes an idol that keeps us from being humble and being open to feedback and willing to say, I have no idea what I'm doing. We came to the next clearing, and I said, I have done some horse riding, but not like this. I need some help. I need some guidance. I need something. But it took about a half hour of riding and almost getting hit by a couple different branches before I finally went, I might need to ask for help. Those in Judah and Israel, they don't ask for help. They don't see it coming, and they don't. And so he goes on to say, guys, this is such a problem that you don't even know what you don't know. Here's how he says it. You drink these wine from bowls, you're anointing yourself with best ointments, but you're not grieved. You're not grieved at what you're doing. Your actions are hurting other people. In fact, you're hurting the southern kingdom, the affliction of Joseph. You are causing things that your brothers and your fellow family members are suffering the consequences for. Therefore, they shall now go captive as the first of the captives. Those, so who's they? Those who recline at the banquets, those who are comfortable I've been talking about, they are going to go captive and they're going to be the first. You think you're a long way off from consequences sitting there on your couch? No, no, you are going to be the first to feel the pain when Assyria comes in. What? Yeah. You're not grieved. It's one thing I loved about that Bible study that day is guys who are starting to just be honest about the fact I didn't realize my insensitivity had been hurting my wife for so long. I didn't realize how much I neglected my kids during that time of my career. They were starting to be grieved over how their actions were affecting the people they cared about. Are you grieved? by some of the decisions you make, some of the ways you respond, the ways you use your tongue, or the ways you use your money, your calendar? Have you ever been grieved that you might be hurting other people by what you do or don't do? Because if you don't have a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit to be grieved, then what's worse is you may not know, you may not feel, you may not even realize that you're on the path. And the farther you go down the path to destruction, the less you know you're on the path of destruction. In fact, it's interesting, this uh, reference to Joseph here, because Joseph had a whole life of affliction. He's just talking about the descendants of Joseph. In fact, we have a whole series coming up in, uh, in two weeks at our exploring service called Unshakable, where we're going to be telling the story of Joseph using the metaphor of mountain climbing. And so many of you know that we have three services now, 8.30, 9.45, and 11 o'clock. First two are equipping services, and our third one is an exploring service. It's a service designed for you to invite your friends. 
And so maybe you've never thought about inviting a friend to church or maybe with things reopening and, and, and neighbors that actually able to talk to each other. You've got a friend who's not really into church, not really into to, to religious stuff. But you know what? Uh, maybe I'd like to invite them. This would be a great series to invite them to. How to Pursue Your Wildest Dreams, Learning the Story of Joseph. Listen, some great music we got planned. And again, that service, if you've never been there, doesn't do any praise and worship. Today we're doing some police and, and, and we're doing some James Taylor. And it is, we're doing music that your friends would love and opening up spiritual topics that would be easy to go to lunch afterwards and talk about. And so Joseph is a great story of somebody who had confidence in God during the ups and downs of life. And maybe that's something you want to invite a friend to coming up here in a few weeks at our Unshakable series about the story and power of Joseph. Now, what's interesting is that in the second conversation, often we think we're so far off from pride that we're not going to lead to destruction, but often it's when we feel the pain, even a little bit down that path, and when we turn back to God, we find out later, oh, God was so loving and so caring to give me that big, whoa. In fact, we had a greeters training about uh, two or three weeks ago out in the tent. It was out in the tent. We had a big uh, gathering there. So all the greeters were getting trained for our three services and came. We just had a great time together. As we were dialoguing, I was just so, so thankful for those who serve weekly, you know, serve you as you're coming in, those who are, get you parked on the way in, those who are right now teaching your children or students while we're here. I was just so thankful for all those who volunteer all those who give financially, if you give financially, especially during this last year, but in general so that we can continue to, to, to support and create services. It just, it's just an incredible, grateful time to celebrate what God was doing. Well, in the middle of that, we interviewed a guy, Matt, and said, Matt, tell us how important the church is to you, how it's helped you and your family. And just in relatively impromptu, unplanned interview, he just shared, he said, you know, I really wasn't a churchgoer years ago. And I went to a couple of churches and I didn't feel very friendly and I didn't feel very welcome. But man, I came to Horizon. Somebody parked my car and smiled at me and I thought, this is different. I walked in the door and I had like two or three people say hi to me on the way in. And I'm like, this kind of feels friendly. I really hadn't been around the Bible or church in, in years, and I began to come and learn about the Bible and learn about God, and something came alive in me. And I began to understand who God is and know how to talk to Him and know how to study the Bible, and I began to find something in me, a newfound strength, a newfound courage, a newfound connection to God came in me because of what was happening in my life here at Horizon. And as we began to talk longer, he said, and I'm so glad God prepared our family for that. And I said, why is that? And so just a few months ago, we found out my wife has cancer. They're both very young. And all of a sudden, we got the big, giant, monster sea of cancer staring us down as a family. And man, I don't know where I would be or my wife would be or my family would be if we didn't now know that God was something we're trusting in, not our health. We hope God's going to get us through this health crisis. But we're trusting in God, not our circumstances. And I just thought, you know, every week when you, you know, are serving or maybe you're a volunteer who's, who's putting crafts together for kids or maybe you're someone who writes that faithful check every week. And, and as Drew talked about last week, those acts of worship, those acts of worship are planting seeds in people's hearts. And here's someone who said, but I didn't even know I was headed toward a path of needing to face a cliff of cancer. 
and I didn't have God in the center of my life, and God was saying, whoa, 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 you need to be over here with me, so when you face these challenges, I'll be with you. That's what we're doing as a church. We're creating environments where people can find a God who's there for them as they face the challenges of life. Third conversation. What's the third conversation he has with the people? It's pretty fascinating. Because they have an attitude a lot like our culture today. You point out some things they're doing wrong, and they say, oh, no, no, God's a loving God. He doesn't care about that kind of stuff. He doesn't judge that kind of stuff. God doesn't care what I do in the bedroom or what I do with my money, and God doesn't care what I do with my calendar, and God doesn't care you know, how kind I am or how my anger issue. I'm Irish. We've always been angry. God doesn't care about that stuff. Really? Because Amos says, mm. You're saying to yourself, God doesn't care or judge that stuff. But God says, whoa, I feel passionately about that thing. Passionately about the thing you don't think I care about. And when I judge it, it's because I am a loving God and I'm not indifferent. I love you too much not to care. I love you too much not to say something about this. And so God launches in when they think he doesn't care or judge. And God opens up this next woe with, the Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts, the God of angel armies we sang about today, says this. I don't mind if you do anything wrong because I'm up in heaven. No, that's not what he says. He says, I abhor the pride of Jacob. I abhor pride. I do care about it. In fact, I'm passionately against pride. It leads to people being hurt and run over. I hate the palaces that you've built on the backs of exploiting others and enslaving others. Therefore, since I see it and since I've warned and since you're not listening and since you keep going down the path, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. You will face consequences. I don't want you to. There's still time to turn around. It's mercy time. It's grace time. Come on. I hate what you're doing because I love you. Turn back around. But I also love you enough to give you the freedom to say, if you want to run up against that wall, it's going to hurt. And after you bang your head into the wall, I'll be here to put a a Band-Aid on it. But I love you too much. Not to tell you that this is a big problem. And you're headed for some pain. He goes on. Then it shall come to pass, it will, if ten men remain in one house... When the Syrians come in here, guys, it's going to be so painful. Ten people are going to be in the house. A Syrians come through, there's going to be one left. He's going to be left for dead. And when a relative of the dead, the one who will burn the bodies, picks up the bodies and takes them outside, you think of that Monty Python scene, you know, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. I'm not dead yet, I feel happy. Oh, he'll be dead in a moment. Because this is a serious moment in the Syrian Empire. They're going to come in and people you love and people you care about are going to be hurt. And when the guy shows up to pick up the dead bodies, and one of you is kind of still barely alive, he's going to say, wow, what happened here? Are there any more here with you? Is what the guy bringing the bodies is going to say. And someone will say, no, none. And he'll say, hold your tongue, don't talk. Syrians might hear. More than that, this is so classic, they blame God for what happened. Is anybody else here? None. But then look how they blame God. Hold your tongue. We dare not mention the name of the Lord. Don't mention God's name because he might send a lightning bolt to us. 
No, that's not what happened at all. You trusted in your figured outness and your mountains of Samaria and your might and your power. And God said, all right, you don't want my help? I won't give you my help. Let's see how all those things you're doing work out when the Assyrians come. <clears throat> oh, 10 dead people, burning of bodies. And then you're saying, well, don't mention this. This is clearly God's mad at us. No, God warned you for years and years and years and years. He goes on. For behold, the Lord gives a command. He's going to break the great house into bits. You think you got security in your great house and your great temple? No, he's going to break this house into bits, the little house into bits as well. And you know why? Because you have been running your horses on rocks. You don't run horses on rocks. It carves up their feet. It destroys their legs. You have been running your horses on rocks, and you wonder why they're starting to get crippled. You've been taking your oxen, and you've been plowing land that's filled with rocks. Does one plow there with rocks, with your oxen? No. You find a better piece of land that's not filled with rocks because you're going to tear up the oxen. You're going to wear them out. Find a better piece of soil. You've been trying to, to push your way through rocky soil instead of changing locations, changing decisions, changing your behavior. And therefore, you are facing the consequences. For you have turned righteousness, things designed for good, into wormwood bitterness. You have turned justice, something I'm for, and you've turned it into bitter gall like stomach acid. And you think that you can do all those things and not face the consequences. I'm telling you, whoa, I love you too much not to warn you. So what's his main point? Well, he comes back with something that seems opaque, except when you read it, it gets clearer. He says, either, guys, you're going to make God your strength or God's going to expose the strengths that you're depending on. He gets real sarcastic, but it's hard to see in the English. God says, through Amos, you who rejoice over Lodabar. That's the name of a city. But he mispronounces it. It's supposed to be Lodabar. He pronounces it Lodibar. You who rejoice over Lodibar, and who have said, oh, we don't have to worry about that, the Assyrians, because we we've taken Canaan for ourselves by our own strength. We took that big old city, and therefore no one can take us. But God says, behold, I'm going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel. And they are going to afflict you. They are, not me. It's not me. It's going to be them. But I'm not going to protect you if you don't want my protection. From the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Arabar. Now, why is this sarcastic? Well, these are two cities. Lodabar, which is actually pronounced Debar, but he pronounced it Debar. Why? The word Debar means nothing. You trust in that city called Debar, but it's actually low. Debar, you're trusting in nothing. It'd be like saying, oh, you really enjoy Cincinnati, do you? Cincinnati, yep. Cincinnati is going to save you, yep. The, the center of, uh, of Cincinnatus. Uh, you know, for all of you who have sinus infections, you know we call Cincinnati Cincinnatus. He's like calling the city they're trusting in, they think, is, a, is the, the trophy on their mantle, and he's calling it nothing. And then the other city they mentioned, this big city they conquered, if we could conquer a city like Canaan, Canaan, no one's going to conquer us. But the official name of that city was actually Ashtaroth Canaan. If you remember Ashtaroth, it's one of the idols. So the actual name of the city was the idol Ashtaroth. If you remember from our study of Jonah, the prophet Baal, not the prophet Baal, but the god Baal had a mother named Ashtaroth or Ashtaroth. It was the goddess of sensuality, the goddess of pleasure. 
He basically says, you are trusting in an idol. You're even trusting after a city that's named after an idol. And if you think pleasure is going to save you, tell you what, God, I'll give you over to your pleasure. You keep indulging in that. You see if it makes you freer or puts you enslaved. You think pursuing power for your life is going to make you freer? Okay, I'm going to expose those strengths. You think those strengths will save you from the Syrians? You think those things will bring you freedom? All right, I'll step back, see how that works out for you. You're either going to make God your strength or God's going to expose your strengths. 1919, there was the great uh, molasses avalanche that happened, I think, in Boston. 2.3 million gallons of molasses put into this container, and it breaks, and molasses starts flowing down. 2.3 million gallons flows through town, kills 12 to 20 people. They did an investigation. They found that everyone who had built and constructed that container to hold the molasses had cut every corner, cheated every way, and then those holdings, those solder joints, those welding joints, under pressure, <clears throat> all of the weaknesses were exposed. And people, innocent people, died because somebody cheated and didn't use the proper strengths to hold that kind of pressure. God said the same thing. Life's filled with pressure, and I can withstand the pressure. Trust in me. Make me your strength. Otherwise, I'll expose the fact that the things you're putting your confidence in are not going to hold. And to do that, you know what we need to see is where does that strength come from? Except that can God withstand the pressure? See, it's on the cross we see Jesus under severe pressure, physical pressure with nails in his hands and into his feet. We see him under emotional pressures. Everyone who cares about him abandons him, except maybe his mother and John. We see the pressure of the, the crowds turning against him. Crucify him! Just after they said, oh, Hosanna, Hosanna. And under pressure, what comes out of him except, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And under pressure, the confidence is saying, this is why I'm here. It is finished! I want that kind of strength at the center of my life. If somebody can withstand that pressure and still have the fruit of the Spirit come out, I want some of that. So let me give you a chance to pray and ask God that he would be your strength today and you would trust his voice whatever path you find yourself on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of your grace and your love that you love us enough to warn us. And we repent of making pleasure in our own intellect and our own self-sufficiency idols. Forgive us for Jesus died for those idols that we would make you king of our lives. Maybe you want to pray that right now. Just say, God, forgive me for my idols. Thank you for dying for me. And I invite you to be the strength of my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you all next week.